It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show the National President for the Canadian Association of Journalists, Brent Jolly. And Brent was elected as President of the CAJ on July 6th of 2020 for the term of 2020 to 2022. He served as the Vice President of the CAJ since 2018 and chaired the Association's Events and Advocacy Committees. Now, he also works as a Managing Director for the National News Media Council of Canada and also as an independent writer, editor, and researcher with a variety of outlets. So it's a pleasure to have Brent here to talk about, uh, I guess, the, the state of freedom of the press to in Canada and also the state of things that we have been seeing develop out West uh, with the with Soatan community and uh, with specifically a couple of journalists that were arrested out there. So Brent, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. Thanks for that nice introduction. That's very, very, very generous of you. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, well, you know, one more thing I should probably add is that you uh, you succeeded Karen Pugliese, who, uh, whom I worked with yeah. uh, uh, closely at APTN for a number of years. So. Yeah, no, well, Karen Karen's a, a North Star in a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, she dealt with the Justin Brake case right yeah. from the get-go. So uh, knowledge is passed down from one generation to the next. So uh, I'm glad to, to follow in her, her footsteps in a lot of these issues. So mm. it's a pleasure. Right. And for people that don't know uh, anything about the Canadian Association of Journalists, it's an independent, not-for-profit organization that provides advocacy and professional development for journalists across Canada. And it's been, uh, for more than 40 years, it's worked to provide uh, vital advocacy and professional development, uh, as I said, across Canada. So um, that is why it's important to have Brent here with us today, because they are very much involved with situations around journalists. Journalism. Now, Brent, you mentioned uh, a case that sort of was a precedent in some ways uh, through APTN, um, uh, uh, Justin Brake. Uh, do you want to you want to just fill us in a little bit about that and how that how that sets up what is going on now and why it's so important? Yeah, well, the, the Justin Brake case was something that took place in 2016. Um, at uh, it was involving Justin, who's a, a freelance writer. He works now for the Breach and a few other news outlets. Um, and he was there covering the Muskrat Falls, covering uh, the events going on there. You know, it was about natural resource extraction, uh, indigenous rights, that whole situation there. Um, and again, this is sort of a, a situation where there was a, an injunction in place. And the law enforcement there said that, you know, oh, Justin breached the injunction. Um, he he was, you know, colluding or, or cajoling with with protesters. And sort of this was a situation that, you know, law enforcement sort of cast, uh, you know, an independent journalist as a, as a protest. Hmm. And ultimately, you know, things things escalated and, uh, you know, Justin, Justin got in quite a bit of trouble um, because of that, um, incorrectly so with with the RCMP. But, you know, this is part of how things go in these cases. Um, and so, you know, there was a, a, a lengthy protracted court battle um, that ultimately went right up to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador. 
um, and they passed down a decision ultimately in 20, goodness, 20, several, it was a few years later, 2018, 2019. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that, uh, that, you know, kind of passed on and said, you know, that the RCMP, you know, can't do this kind of stuff. And, and there were follow-up complaints with the civilian review and complaints commission, which is the, uh, body that oversees the RCMP, uh, the civilian oversight body, you know, and they said, you know, issues like exclusion zones, which mm-hmm. the RCMP has used in many cases are unlawful um, and shouldn't be used. But, you know, kind of this is the, you know, what we fast forward now to what we, we've seen in, in Wet'suwet'en twice now, and, and most recently, you know, just a couple of weeks ago was, you know, the RCMP employing these kind of exclusion zones, although they might not call them that, they're essentially that where, uh, you know, that prevents journalists from going in and, and getting photos and covering the events that are going on and providing, you know, documentation of what uh, RCMP activities or other law enforcement bodies are, are, are undertaking. Um, and so this is part of the, you know, this is part of a vital element of transparency, you know, um, <laughs> that that the RCMP is, is definitely overstepped on, on on a few occasions, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, we're not we're not going to take this sort of stuff very lightly. We had a major situation, um, as I'm sure some of your listeners have heard as well, in Ferry Creek over the summertime, hmm. um, which is involving, you know, again, there are issues of indigenous rights and and resource rights and, and all of these sort of things. And and, you know, we we went right to the B.C. Supreme Court and got a decision from Justice Thompson there that said, you know, much the same that mm. that journalists are allowed to cover these events in the public interest and that they shouldn't just be rounded up and and detained or, or arrested by law enforcement for simply doing their job. Right. Now, now the RCMP, I understand, said that they were embedded with the protesters. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a fine line there somehow with that word being used, embedded? And, 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 and why is that an issue that a journalist cannot be, you know, within uh, a group of people to, to get the coverage that is needed? Well, I think I think the the wording, the use of the word embedded is mm-hmm. definitely uh, a bit of a PR tactic mm-hmm. on the RCMP's part, you know, to sort of make it look like uh, Amber and Michael were sort of participating in the protest or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a sort of guilty by association, right. you know, sort of are and feather them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can speak fairly confidently in, in knowing Amber especially well and, and also Michael you know, that that they were there doing the jobs. Um, and, you know, whether the RCMP wants to say they were embedded, like you would uh, as, a, as, a, as a war reporter in Iraq or, or Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch to try and give them a bit of um, mental or, or legal runway to sort of justify the actions that they're doing. So I kind of take that with a bit of a grain of salt because... You know, what we what we discussed in the Ferry Creek case over the summer was, you know, how does how do you identify, you know, people can say they're journalists, but how do you how does how do police forces ultimately decide, you know, who's a who's acting as they're in their capacity as a journalist and who's there as a demonstrator or or protesting something. And, you know, what we what we argued was, 
it's it, the focus in the test should be really on someone's behavior. You know, if the person is there saying that they are a journalist um, and they're there, you know, documenting, taking pictures, getting video, you know, all the regular things that, that a journalist would do, you know, that's fair. That's fine. Um, it's when an individual who claims to be a journalist or says they're a journalist and they suddenly you know, break that that barrier or cross that invisible line to sort of, you know, they would sit down in front of a, a police cruiser and prevent them from going down a logging road or start throwing stones or something mm-hmm. at, at officers as they're trying to undertake their, their work, you right. know? Right. And I think this is the bigger point that we really need to focus on here is that, you know, journalists have a job to do and the RCMP has a job to do as well. You know, these are two different professions, but... Both uh, have have a role to play. You know, uh, the RCMP is been given these instructions to enforce an injunction that a court has has asked them to. You know, so they're doing their thing, but but journalists are there to provide some transparency and accountability for what's going on. And and I think in the long term, you know, that's really probably in the RCMP's best interest would be to have somebody seeing what's going on. Um, You know, there's a crisis across the world right now in public institutions and trust in public institutions. And I I think the RCMP suffers from that just as much as any other institution Mm. does. So, so what it really, you know, I'd ask, you know, sort of rhetorically, what is there to hide? You know, people, people be able to see what's going on. And then, you know, maybe the, the arguments aren't as, as, as significant or as skewed to say, you know, here's, here's what we're doing, but, you know, it seems like over and over and over again, we just sort of fall into this trap of, you know, trying to to do things under the under a cloak of darkness. And and that reinforces a lot of people's opinions about how, you know, law enforcement executes these kind of orders. Has, has the RCMP said anything about why they are taking the actions other than defending, you know, with the, the comments they're saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you have a if you have a professional journalist there with credentials, they're doing exactly what you said: observing, getting pictures, taking video, documenting what is going on, not participating as a demonstrator. Uh, how could that not be seen as as someone that is there doing a job? Well, this is this is this is the challenge. I mean, we hear from. The the higher, you know, halls of power with the RCMP that, you know, you saw the press release that, uh, you know, one of the assistant commissioners released about, you know, respecting the role of journalists in a democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was the group, uh, you know, in the at the at the at the height of the, you know, the, the top there for the RCMP after the Ferry Creek decision, you know, that there was no in, uh, insinuation that they would not be obeying the orders or, or respecting the orders that were put into the injunction. Um, but it seems like there's this disconnect that keeps coming up every single time between what happens at the, you know, political and bureaucratic side, if I can call it that versus what ultimately happens on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think really our challenge as, as the CAJ and, and as, you know, professional journalists is how do we, how do we bridge that gap and how do we how do we ensure that, you know, we don't keep falling into these same traps over and over and over again? You know, this I understand the RCMP is there. They want to ensure the safety of you know everybody who is present. Fair enough. 
completely fair that uh, what I'm not saying is everybody should be able to go around and do whatever they want. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's unreasonable, but there are limits on, on the restrictions and the impositions that the RCMP can, can, can take in these cases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where is the line? Well, hopefully we can, we can work together and maybe draw that out in a little bit more of a, a permanent marker instead of a, you know, erasable pencil all the time. <laughs> right. Now, uh, on uh, November 22nd, uh, you sent a letter um, to the uh, public safety minister um, uh, from the CAJ, and that was uh, to demand some action um, that, mm-hmm. that they be uh, released, because at that point they had just been arrested. Um, do you feel that, uh, that that got through? Do you feel, Did you hear anything back from that? Uh, we did get an acknowledgement that uh, from the the minister's uh, press secretary, you know that things were that were were being taken into consideration, and I know the minister did tweet about you know his his resolute uh, belief in the role of the media in a liberal democracy. All good things, you know. The mm-hmm. right words are said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's but to me, you know, it's about action and following up. Now um, we've we've gone through this exercise so many times, just even in the last. Year, two years between, you know, with Suetin in early 2020, uh, you know, various uh, issues going on, clearing of homeless encampments in various cities Mm -hmm. across the country, you know, Toronto and Halifax Mm -hmm. come to mind. Uh, Carl, uh, Carl Dockstader's issue at uh, 1492 Landback Lane, you know, like after, after a while you start to say, okay, I understand, you know, there is no deniability that, law enforcement can't be aware of this and that this isn't an issue mm. or, or that this is a simple oversight. And this is what I'm kind of wondering is at what point and, and to whom do we have to address these questions um, in order for there to be action taken and, and followed up, you know, um, <laughs> we've, you know, there's the, the civilian review and complaints commission for the RCMP that I mentioned before, you know, we can we can file a complaint with them, um, and that's still perhaps an option. You know, but I'm I'm also concerned that you know there's been many times, several instances where the complaints commission has said, you know, the the use of injunction zones, for example, like I was mentioning before, are unlawful. Mm-hmm. And you know, these are you know taken as polite suggestions by the RCMP as opposed to something that is a you know you must do or you know in order to to maintain legitimacy. Um, so it's, it's, it's a challenge, but I'm hoping that, you know, I, that, that, that this, this is the, this is the time where, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back is able to, uh, ignite some change here because, uh, you know, we saw in the, 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 the fallout of this was incredible, to be honest with you. I mean, Mark Miller was tweeting about it. The minister was tweeting about it. Like, this is a, this is a national issue when you have. Uh, you know, not just journalists being arrested, but also, you know, to not to over obscure the, the 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 story that's going on here, which is you know the RCMP's enforcement of uh, you know their their power on private prop on uh, on lands, you know, uh, unceded lands uh, relating to the construction of a private pipeline. Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are major issues. You know, right. these are these are fundamental. We want to talk about you know how do we get move forward and in. in you know, reconciliation and whatever that means, you know, that to each person, that means a different thing. But here's something tangible where we can really unpack that and and try and figure it out. And yet, you know, we kind of 
you know, get sidetracked by it all. And, and I think that that's kind of frustrating in the long haul. Mm. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Brent Jolly. He is the National President for the Canadian Association of Journalists, and we are talking about press freedom in Canada and specifically been uh, looking at the Wet'suwet'en situation on the West Coast in regard to uh, two journalists that were arrested uh, in uh, late November, uh, subsequently released. However, um, the situation continues and continues to raise questions because of actions that the RCMP take in uh, in setting up an unlawful injunctions and and then uh, and it seems like RCMP doesn't really seem to uh, want to address or, or, or acknowledge the, the fact that they've be, they've been told this mm-hmm. well I mean I'm supposed to have a conversation with uh, with the RCMP later this week mm-hmm. um, about some of these issues and and trying to find you know a better way to to ensure that all this stuff happens mm-hmm. and you know I'll, I'll i'll take that for what it's worth you mm-hmm. know we've we've been outspoken on these issues for for quite some time um and and we've asked for meetings with various you know officials and and nothing has ever come through this time something has so um i'm hoping and and hopeful always that you know this will result in something more productive um but you know, the, 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 the record sort of speaks for itself in this case. And, you know, the status quo is, is, is not sufficient. <laughs> you know, the, car, the, 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 the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, you know, Section 2B is very clear in the terms of rights afforded to media to, you know, assemble, observe and report on, you know, various institutions, which includes the police. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something we're going to make sure um, is recognized and upheld. And and so hopefully, you know, we can we can come to some better understanding in the very near future. Um, you mentioned about how uh, some of the other ministers uh, were, were tweeting and commenting on this. You mentioned Mark Miller. But uh, I know you, you also sent a second letter uh, out on November 23rd. Now, um, that letter you, you sent out um, was because the uh, Amber Bracken and Michael Tolanetto were released, uh, granted bail. But mm-hmm. um, a number of people you mentioned in the letter, uh, first of all, Canada's public safety minister, Mar- Marco Mendesino, as well as you mentioned some of the other ministers, such as um, uh, Mike Farnworth, right? Minister yeah. of Public Safety for BC. Yeah. Now, are you hearing back from any of these other people that you, you know, CC'd on this in- information? No, no. And that's that's concerning because I think, you know, this is uh, this this could very easily devolve into a game of political football here yeah. where uh, Mr. Mendocino would say, you know, yes, the RCMP uh, you know, the terms of reference, the RCMP falls under his sort of general portfolio. However, in this case, um, they were sort of being simply contracted to enforce this injunction on behalf of the uh, Ministry of Public Safety in British Columbia. So ultimately, in that way, uh, you know, it's definitely Mr. Farnsworth who who has some, some questions to answer on this, um, because ultimately they were acting under the authority of that, uh, that ministry and, and his department. So that's, I mean, I, I'm very cognizant that, you know, Mr., that we, that, you know, there's a, an, an, a, a discussion to be had on many different fronts here mm. because, you know, this happened again with Ferry Creek as well. Mm. Um, 
you know, so there's, there's, there's a pattern of behavior here that, uh, that is troubling. And yeah, we can't, we can't just think that this is a federal issue because, well, you know, welcome to Canada, everything ultimately boils down to a question of federalism and, mm-hmm. and who's responsible. So we have to, we have to be aware that, you know, that this is going to play itself out on many different tracks. Um, and, and it's not just necessarily uh, a federal issue to resolve, but, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, what we're talking about here is also additional oversight and better oversight for mm. the RCMP mm. um, as, a, as, a, as an idea and as a goal. And that is something that definitely can apply at the federal level and to, to Mr. Mendocino and others. So that's, mm. that's definitely the still the ask um, in that regard. Right. Now, as you mentioned, this conversation you'll be having with the RCMP later on, Going, looking at what has happened in the past, you, you brought up Justin Brake and the situation that, that happened there, and uh, all criminal charges uh, were dropped. Uh, we, you mentioned also about uh, Carl Doxeter, and, and um, mm-hmm. those charges were later with, withdrawn. So there seems to be this situation of, of back and forth again, to some degree, where you, you have the journalists arrested and charged, but then ultimately they get yeah. dropped. So uh, what, what, is the, what is the RCMP missing? Uh, I don't I don't know if they're missing anything at this point. I think it's, you know, a fairly uh, well, maybe I'm being overly harsh here, but I think it's a fairly deliberate strategy at this point Mm. um, that they can see, you know, that, you know, an order is open for a certain amount of time. And it's uh, it's a it's a strategy to diffuse a problem. Mm. You know, Melissa Cox is another person who Mm. was there and who was. Uh, detained on the day before Amber and Michael were uh, were arrested, and she was brought to the uh, to this to the police uh, depot. Uh, you know, you know, given her you know the typical runaround, and and then released. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that this is something that is definitely seen. Uh, you know, whether it's you know trumped up ideas about what somebody's doing or. Uh, you know, <laughs> imaginary things happening. I don't know. I, I wasn't there to be able to yeah. completely speak to how how Melissa, you know, things were going on with Melissa. But, uh, you know, I do I do see it as a pattern of behavior where, oh, well, we can we can solve this problem by just, you know, hauling somebody off, driving them around and then dumping them off in a in a corner over here somewhere far away. And then they don't come back until the next day or maybe they don't feel comfortable coming back because mm-hmm. they've gone through a traumatic experience where, you know, they've been rounded up. They've had their uh, equipment searched. They've been given the nth degree um, for simply, you know, being there and doing their job. So, you know, I, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's I, I, they would the RCMP would probably never say anything to that effect, of course. But you know, it's a it's a fairly deliberate strategy based on all the evidence that I've seen over the course of the last little while. Mm-hmm. Now, as you also mentioned, uh, the situation, even though uh, Amber and, and Michael were granted bail, uh, released from jail, the situation uh, isn't isn't resolved at this point. What what will your involvement be with CAJ and in terms of helping the journalists and, and uh, getting involved with them? Absolutely. So we're we're in touch with both of them, um, and we're also supporting the news organizations in mm-hmm. terms of you know what how this fits into the bigger picture. So. We've got we've got a few options on the table. One is the civilian the complaint to the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission. One is, you know, continuing to to advocate and to make sure that the public is aware of these issues. Um, and you know, to also do kind of the things that we've been doing with uh, with the RCMP. You know, this is a 
you know, to make sure that there is that awareness about what's going on and that, you know, you know, maybe in the past, these things got by and and flew under the radar and they were allowed to happen. But, uh, but you know what, that's that those days are over. Um, And and I'm completely comfortable in saying that, you know, we're not going to let any of these things, you know, fall by the wayside anymore. We're going to make sure that we go you know, to the wall to protect the rights mm-hmm. of journalists and, and free expression and, and <laughs> freedom of information in Canada, because, mm-hmm. you know, if nobody does, uh, you know, we become weaker for it, you know, and mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't fight for your rights and stand up for them, they have a, a an unfortunate way of, of disappearing pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that other countries are paying attention to what is happening here? Uh, and uh, are you speaking with, with people, uh, journalists in other countries or organizations about what's going on? Yeah, it's been it's been it's been quite interesting. Um, I think, you know, there's always that fact, the reality that people are, oh, my God, this is happening in Canada. You know, like there's mm. a, this this unfounded, this this bizarre idea that, you know, nothing, nothing possibly can go wrong <laughs> in Canada and we're all perfect and well done. I think a lot of viewers will get a good chuckle out of that in mm. the first place. Um, but. Yeah, I mean the the international attention on this was was quite significant. You know, I there was uh, contacts those with American news organizations. Uh, you know, the New York Times wrote a story about it. The Guardian wrote a story about it. Um, and you know, just in speaking with some of my my friends and and colleagues in that in other countries, people were generally shocked. They said, wow, this happens. And I was, well, yeah, no kidding. eh? Mm. You know, you would think this would happen in in China or Russia or somewhere, you know, like that. Mm. But but no, this is happening in Canada. And this is the reality of it. You know, journalists are having are being put in more and more dire situations every single day. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the, the, the amount of training that journalists need to go in to cover these sort of situations like like at Ferry Creek or or in Wet'suwet'en or any other, a lot of other places, even, even in, even in downtown Toronto, uh, you know, that there's, there's this, this overarching uh, Damocles' sword that, that hangs above people's heads, you know, and will they be arrested? Will they be detained for, for simply doing what they're supposed to be doing, taking video and pictures and audio and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, it's time to wake up that this is happening in our own backyards. We don't have to look at Afghanistan. It's happening right here at home. Right. Nicely said. Brent, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you on this topic. And I certainly hope that uh, you'll keep us abreast of what's going on and uh, maybe come back on the show and give us an update uh, when we have something uh, more to perhaps some good news to share about uh, how uh, freedom of the press is is being addressed in Canada. Maybe there will be something good that we can report on in, in, in the new year, perhaps. I've got my fingers crossed and I would love to do that. So we'll be in touch. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Take care. That's Brent Jolly. He is the national president for the Canadian Association of Journalists. And it was a pleasure talking to him about uh, freedom of the press and specifically what's been happening out in the Wet'suwet'en community and situation on the West Coast. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. 
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show today. I have the co-hosts of Story Keepers with me, and they first met some time ago at Carleton University at an event around storytelling. Interesting how they've come back to now uh, join co-hosting a show called Story Keepers, which launched in March of this year, 2021. Jennifer David and Wab Gishik Rice is, are here on the show to talk about Story Keepers. They have done a number of shows now, and the whole idea of this, this show, of course, um, is to talk about Indigenous stories and have guests on the show to explore their stories. And, uh, and they also say right off the top that there's a spoiler alert because they go in and talk about things and give you spoilers uh, throughout the the, uh, the interviews that they do. So it is a pleasure to have both of them here, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about both of them as well. So Jennifer David, she's a member of the Shaplow Cree First Nation, and she was born and raised in the Omushkego Treaty 9 territory, but she has lived in the Ottawa area for the last 30 years. She has worked in the Indigenous Communications area of consulting uh, for 25 years and she was director of communications for the Aboriginal People's Television Network and now works as a senior consultant for Envision Insight Group in Ottawa. Her favorite place when she was growing up in her hometown of Shaplow was, can you guess it? It was the public library, of course. And we're going to talk about that and their love, both of their loves of, of reading. We'll get into that a little bit. She has degrees in journalism and English literature from Carleton University. And she took a course in Indigenous literature. And that what's, that's what kind of sparked her interest uh, of looking into this world. She's a voracious reader. And in 2004, she wrote a book of interviews with Indigenous writers across Canada. It's called Story Keepers and Conversations with Aboriginal Writers, and hence that inspired this name for this podcast. In 2010, she self-published a book about APTN, Original People, Original Television, the launching of Aboriginal People Television Network. She currently writes freelance articles on Indigenous art and artists for the National Gallery, National Gallery of Canada magazine. Wabgishik Rice is an author and journalist from Wasoxing First Nation in uh, Georgian Bay area of Ontario. And his first short story collection, Midnight Sweat Lodge was inspired by his experience of growing up in the Anishinaabe community and won an Independent Publishers Book Award in 2012. His debut novel, Legacy, followed in 2014. A French translation was published in 2017. And his latest novel, Moon on the Crusted Snow, became a national bestseller and received widespread critical claim, including the Evergreen Award of 2019. Now, he started his experience uh, of journalism in 1996 as an exchange student in northern Germany, writing articles about being an indigenous youth in a foreign country for newspapers back in Canada. He graduated from Ryerson University in journalism in 2002, and he spent most of his journalism career with the CBC and uh, as a video journalist and web writer and producer and radio host. In 2014, he received the Anishinaabe Nation's uh, Debewin 
Citation for Excellence in First Nations Storytelling. And uh, he has since moved on to explore uh, his own writing experience. And it's a pleasure to have both of them here. And I could go on, of course, there's so much more to say about both Wab and Jennifer, but it's a pleasure to have them here. So I want to say, say go and welcome to the show, to Wab and Jennifer. Yes, hello, Wache and hello. (laughs) Uh, Great to have you guys here and congratulations on the podcast, uh, Story Keepers. Thank Thank you. you. It's been fun. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess it has been because you're still doing it and uh, <laughs> you've had a number, you know, as I was looking through the the website and I wanted to talk a little bit about the website as well because I really like the way it's laid out. I love the fact that you not only uh, welcome people to the show, you, you talk about uh, your love of reading, you invite people that have that love to also explore this along with you. You have these great episodes where you uh, talk about books, but you also bring in guests um, and and have them on the show to talk about these things and talk about the books that you're looking at. Um, you also have, I really like how you have the, uh, the books uh, shelf that people can go to to find out more about the books you're exploring and where they can find them. That's always cool. And... Um, and so you also have stuff about your, your guest host, which is, is really wonderful. I really like the way it's laid out. And I, I noticed that uh, the way you describe it is classic and recent book storytelling. Uh, <laughs> can, you ex- can you guys explain that a little bit more for me? Well, you know, there is this uh, excellent body of work created by some trailblazing indigenous authors over the past like 40, 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, very influential and formative books by people, you know, like Lee Miracle, mm-hmm. Thomas King, Marilyn Dumont, Maria Campbell, and so on, right? So those are the books that inspired generations that followed. Um, and what we're seeing now uh, is, you know, this resurgence of storytelling from indigenous communities through literature and what we're seeing are books by indigenous authors crawling up the bestseller lists uh being nominated for and winning many major awards so those are sort of the recent uh, i guess modern classics you could say like you know the books that win awards and make the shortlist and so on um but there is this sort of long journey uh this narrative arc so to speak of indigenous literature and i think even though we only focus on one book a month i think that's all anybody has the capacity for really (laughs) um we want to help tell that story too you know of both the classic and the modern uh, examples of storytelling. So, uh, but they all interconnect, right? Um, You know, the modern authors, especially of the younger generation that we talk about and talk to have been influenced by the authors I mentioned before of the previous generations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because they blaze that trail more widely for what we're seeing today. So yeah, it's important to bring all those books and all those people together in these discussions. Mm, Okay. Uh, Jennifer, as I mentioned off the top you guys go way back uh, I know Wob mentioned in a conversation you guys had in your first episode uh, about the show that, that you you may have met at Carleton University around a, a storytelling <laughs> event 
Yes, we were. Uh, and I can't even remember who the professor was now. Maybe it was Andrew Cardozo, I, I think. Um, it was it was a media class uh, through the journalism school at Carleton. And it was on, I don't exactly know what the course was, but but the, a portion of that course had to do about, uh, about the media and the history of, you know, kind of indigenous media. And so the professor had both of us in and I was there to talk about what it was like to uh, launch and work with uh, an Indigenous television uh, network sort of media. And Wob was there to talk about what it was like to be an Indigenous person working for mainstream media. And so we just got chatting and uh, we got along really well. And I've, I've sort of followed him and uh, read his books as mm. well. And, uh, and had always had in the back of my mind that kernel that if ever I was going to, you know, move on this idea that I had for a podcast that Wob was going to be the co-host. <laughs> Wab, what, what came first for you, that love of reading that spurred the journalism? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I really enjoyed, I think, going back even further, just, you know, the experience of engaging with stories as a kid on the res, you mm. know, hearing from elders and hearing stories from family members and learning about my Anishinaabe heritage that way in my community is, you know, I think the foundation for mm. all of this that mm. I do now. Uh, and as like the years went on through my formal education, I became more engaged with like literature, you know, reading and writing and so on. And that really, I think, took off by the time I got to high school mm. and took like formal English class, you mm. know, in grade nine and, you know, just uh, read books on a sort of deeper level in that sense. And yeah, that's really what's um, catalyzed my, I guess, passion for reading. And, and that turned into an interest in creative writing as well. Mm. And, you know, I didn't really see how that could be uh, any sort of career or any sort of other creative path forward other than a hobby. Right. But as I mentioned in the podcast, I had this aunt, uh, my auntie Lane, who uh, shared with me books by indigenous authors when I was a teenager, by the time I was in about grade 11 I think and that that really changed everything for me you know it really uh showed me that our experiences could be shared in literature and that you know I could be empowered to try it on my own and maybe one day uh, become a published writer and yeah this is all before I got any sort of journalistic experience um that happened as you mentioned uh, David during my rotary uh mm. exchange experience um towards the end of my high school years right. uh, but yeah it was definitely the the so, sort of storytelling through literature and oral storytelling too that um predated everything else for sure okay and uh, jennifer what about for you if i can ask you the same question well it was the it was the love of reading for sure that came first and uh as you mentioned in the in the intro you know i grew up in a small in a small town not a lot of access to books my my parents didn't read a lot uh, we didn't have a lot of books at home like after having you know kids books so it was the school library the town library and i i went through as many books as i could and i just had this love of literature and i did want to study um english literature 
literature at university. And my dad, who was a very wise man at the time, said, hmm, like he doesn't say much, but he said, hmm, and what will you do with that degree? And I, he said, will you be a teacher? And I said, heck no, I don't want to be a teacher. Mm. He said, oh, interesting. And that was all he said. So mm. I'm like, huh, maybe that might not be the degree I should get. So I literally did one of those, you know, in high school, when you see the guidance counselor and they make you do one of those tests where they figure out like what mm. job you would be good at. And so I did that test. And out of the end of it, one of the things was a journalist. I'm like, a journalist? I'm like, what really is a journalist, mm. right? Living in a small town, mm. um, there was no radio station. All we had was CBC radio. Mm. And there wasn't anybody in town that worked for that radio station. We had no TV stations. Mm. We had like a, a bi-weekly little newspaper and that was it. So I didn't really know what journalism was. And yet I thought journalism and what my idea of journalism was essentially that somebody would pay me to be nosy and ask people <laughs> questions and help them tell their stories. Like that was my idea of journalism. <laughs> then when I got into J school, I discovered that for most jur journalism jobs or news jobs, you had to like politics. And, mm. you know, I'd, I mm. had this idea of being this foreign correspondent mm. and traveling the world and I hate politics and I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm just not interested in right. news, but I, but I really liked the idea of uh, film and television. And I thought I might go into, you know, documentary or filmmaking, but I just, I just didn't have what it took to, to do that. So I decided that um, I would get into communications instead. And that's how I ended up at APTN doing communications. And I sort of fell mm. in love with that. You know, if you, right. if you have something you're passionate about, I love to, you know, promote and communicate that. So that's where that came from. But all through it, I did have a love of, of reading. I loved going to other places, learning about, you know, different people and their mm. perspectives. And um, yeah, I have always been a, been a reader. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And my guests here on the show are Jennifer David and Babgishik Rice, and they are the co-hosts of Story Keepers, which launched earlier this year. It is a podcast which you can go online to uh, hear, and uh, they have guests that come in. They talk about books. They explore the books, uh, indigenous books I'm specifically referring to here, and uh, they bring in co-hosts as well. So it's pleasure to have them here to talk about story keepers now you know you guys both were these rotary uh correspondents so to speak uh, and and traveled abroad i'm wondering about how how was that seen i would say from the perspective of your indigenous upbringing because you know i know I would always hear on Six Nations, many people didn't want to leave the community. They didn't want to, even for school, you know, they want to stay close to home. How was that, how was that seen in your communities and how, and why was it interesting to you to want to do this? So Jennifer, I'll, I'll ask you first. Well, first, uh, I think because I'm of mixed ancestry, and I mm. have to say it's from my mom's, not the non-Indigenous side mm. of me, I think that gave me that that lust for for travel and that love of 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 um, being adventurous. Mm. My dad, you know, we we lived, you know, on the edge of town uh, by the river, and my dad never learned to drive a car, mm. but he had his boat mm. on the river, and he was always 
always out hunting and fishing and on the land and he never wanted to travel. So I didn't get that from that side. So I'm, I'm thinking that it came from my non-Indigenous right. side because my dad would always shake his head. It's like, why would you want to go there? Mm, right. <laughs> Right. So that's uh, that that's um, but but he always encouraged me to be curious uh, right. of the world around me and right. pay attention to mm-hmm. what was around me. Uh, mm-hmm. And probably like some people growing up in I mean, again, I didn't live on the reserve. In fact, right. there was no reserve for right. Chapel Creek. That's another mm-hmm. story, which I hope to write someday in right. the future. So I grew up in the town and that was and that's different. Many people growing up in small towns are some are desperate to leave, and sure. I was one of them who was right. like, I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> right. Okay, thank you. Wab? Uh, well, I had no idea what I wanted to do for college or university. And um, when I found out about the Rotary opportunity, uh, my parents were very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought it would be a good chance to sort of, uh, I guess, disconnect from, I guess, Canadian education for a little while mm-hmm. and, you know, figure out my path. And, you know, all my friends and relatives on the res uh, were really supportive of it, too. They thought it was a pretty neat idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know, maybe that was due to the era, you know, this was the sort of mid to late 1990s when I guess the world was opening up a little more. And, you know, my community is not northern or far away by any stretch of the imagination, right? It's right, right beside sure. Perry Sound and yeah. it's only about a two hour north of, uh, drive north of Toronto. So yeah. I guess, you know, exploring the world wasn't too far-fetched of a notion. And having the opportunity to explore journalism as a result, you know, I was contacted by the Anishinaabe News, which is published by the Anishinaabeg Nation Hmm. about a month before I left. And they said, hey, we heard you're going to uh, Germany for a year and we'd really like to know more about your experiences there. And that sort of, you know, was my first job in journalism. Hmm. They offered to pay me to write uh, monthly articles for them about being a Anishinaabe kid in northern Germany. Hmm. And so in that sense, I was really encouraged to sort of be myself as an Anishinaabe person over there and be an ambassador, you know, not just for Canada, but for our people, most importantly. And um, it was a really cool way for me to be empowered to uh, write stories, uh, share experiences, uh, but most importantly, uh, relay the truths about who we are, who we were back then as Anishinaabek, right? right? So, yeah, I was very encouraged to to undertake that whole thing. Jennifer, one of the things you said, uh, I remember hearing you say, was that you, you think there should be more Indigenous voices, more, you know, more of this kind of, of thing. And maybe that's part of the reason you were thinking this way back uh, I guess about 10 years ago I think is when you said you, you had this idea for this this idea of the show and uh, and sort of like a book club um, and I get the sense that you you also wanted I guess part two things one to encourage reading and and education at the same time would you guys agree with that Wap? Oh yeah for sure uh, and I think importantly to show that literature or fiction or nonfiction or whatever else are viable avenues for sharing indigenous stories and experiences, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the best way to inspire people of our all ages to explore that is to just show them what's out there and to have deeper conversations about the materials that, you know, have enriched our lives as readers, writers, and journalists, and our fellow guest hosts as uh, artists in whatever realm they work in, you know? Um, And I think with 
our show, that passion really comes through. Mm. And uh, our approach, I think, really is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like straight up laid back, but, you know, we don't have like an agenda by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. We just want to get people together who enjoyed or had deep thoughts uh, about a book and just sort of riff off that, you know, mm-hmm. like we don't really script anything. Um, mm-hmm. We just have some rough ideas of things we want to touch on with the guest, And we allow the conversation to unfold in kind of an organic way, much like a book club or much like friends or relatives gathering, you know, in a living room or around a fire or whatever else, you know, and of course, we're not going to totally replicate that in a digital medium like a mm. podcast. But mm. at the same time, we can hopefully open the door to other people to have similar conversations. Right. right? And I think that's what the underlying spirit of Storykeepers is, right. in my opinion, anyway. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jennifer, yeah, do you want to exactly. add to that? Well, and this idea of, uh, of, of does it, uh, we do want people to, to think about uh, reading, uh, reading Indigenous books by Indigenous authors, and yes, education, mm. because we know that for Indigenous people, it's a very complicated history and, and relationship with education. And we know that everybody is going through pretty much a Western mainstream education system. Uh, and I think if this encourages people to demand that we incorporate indigenous voices into that education i think that we will have done a good thing Mm -hmm. okay um i wanted to to ask about what what have you learned out of this process thus far what do you take away from this first season wob well this shouldn't have been so much of a surprise for me but i was sort of intrigued to learn about some of the common threads through the books themselves and through the guest hosts. Mm. And I think every indigenous nation, uh, you know, as diverse and as beautifully vibrant as they all are and distinct from one another, one another, there are some common experiences. There are some common storytelling threads through each of them, regardless of where they uh, exist on this land. And, you know, in a lot of the materials we've explored, a lot of the stories, whether it's poetry, fiction, or nonfiction, um, a lot of them are a response to colonialism. Um, which is quite profound when you think about it, but it's also, again, as I mentioned earlier, not that surprising, but it's not just about, you know, exploring that trauma and sitting with it. Um, Each of the stories that we've explored talks about healing, talks about moving beyond colonialism while acknowledging its impact and so on, Uh, but celebrating ourselves as Indigenous people and our stories and how our cultures and stories and languages, albeit damaged, have managed to uh, thrive uh, in this modern era despite everything that happened to them, despite mm-hmm. genocide. Right. right? right. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, it really is a celebration of, of a lot of the things we really wanted to get to. So uh, that's been, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it shouldn't have been that eye opening for me, but it was at the same time, I think, because it, this has really been the first time I've had the chance to do this, these kinds of discussions in this kind of format, mm-hmm. you know, um, at CBC, you know, I was limited to just a few minutes at a time sure. on the air, you know, but here, <laughs> 
we can go half an hour, 40 minutes on a particular theme or, or book. Right. So yeah. it's very rewarding for me in that sense. Yeah. I, I understand that. I love the, this long format show that I do for exactly the same reason. And I get so many mm-hmm. people commenting on the fact that they love it as well. It's not just a, a headline, you know, or a couple of mm-hmm. minutes to talk about yeah. something. Uh, Jennifer, based on what Wab was just saying about this and, and your idea of, of taking, you know, and developing story keepers, uh, looking to the future, what are you, what are you hoping and, and what have you taken out of this uh, so far? I, I agree with Wab. It's been fascinating to see the connections uh, between the different stories and the authors and, and the themes that, that come up. And Wab mentioned that, you know, response to colonialism. Yes, that, that we, we saw that. I'd say I saw two other themes that we saw in every book that we, that we talked about. One was family. Mm. Who is our family? What, what does it mean? You know, kinship mm. bonds. We create families, mm. even if our families were, were broken from us. What are those bonds that sort of bring us together? And the other was was this theme of stories and of storytelling that in, in all the books, the characters somehow are themselves, you know, storytelling or using stories or the importance of stories or remembering stories uh, as part of the, the actual book. So I thought that was fascinating. Now that we've done what nine, nine books, um, I think that 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 was an interesting theme that that came out of it. The other thing um, that I got out of this first season was how uh, we were so surprised with how popular the podcast has become. I, I really thought it would be you know just like you said, David, like a few book geeks, you know, kind of just <laughs> tuning into a very niche podcast. Mm. But we have since heard uh, in in Ottawa. Uh, Anyways, I know for sure, because I mean, that's where I'm based, that the school boards have been very interested in the podcast and they uh, sometimes assign those podcast episodes as part of their, you know, in English literature classes. And and that that's that's quite thrilling. I'm quite happy to hear that. So that was a, a bit of a surprise. And we have way more followers than, again, I think that we had anticipated. So that's a wonderful thing uh, as well. And going forward, I think that's that's simply what we want to keep on doing. Mm. Now, I know that Wob is going to have to step back and he can tell you about that. We'll probably have fewer episodes, but that's because he, you know, he's, he's taking on his own mm. writing career and mm-hmm. supporting that too. So I, we, we I want to make sure that, that we support Wob uh, <laughs> and, and I'd love for Wob to, to get more exposure for his work uh, as an author through the podcast, right. uh, because that was one of the, the goals I hope that we would get out of it too. It's been great speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share the uh, uh, first season of uh, Story Keepers. And I wish you guys all the best with what you do in the future with this. And of course, uh, both individually in what you're doing uh, to uh, to move forward as well. Love the idea, Jennifer, of what you said that the schools are looking into this and, and you know, using that as a, as a resource. Wonderful. Great to hear. All fabulous stuff. So I, I congratulate you. I wish you all the best. And can we tell people how they can listen. Yes, Wob's the technical expert of this of our team. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's available through most major podcast platforms, yep. so Apple, Spotify, etc. Um, you can also hear it directly through our website, StoryKeepersPodcast.ca. Okay. Uh, and yeah, you can find us on Facebook at StoryKeepers Podcast, Twitter at StoryKeepersPod, and on Instagram at StoryKeepersPod as well. So find us all on social media um, and. 
yeah, you'll learn about our guest hosts and what we have coming up and so on. And uh, yeah, just Shamiguach, thanks a lot for your interest. My yeah, pleasure. Yeah, me too. We also have book giveaways. So if you follow yes. us on social media, we like to give away uh, some books of the ones that we're talking about each month. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that, Jennifer. I did see that and I was going to mention it. So I appreciate you doing that as well. And they are the voices of Jennifer David and Wabgishik Rice. They are the co-hosts of Story Keepers, which launched earlier this year. And as you heard Jennifer say and Wab say, you can find them on storykeeperspodcast.ca. You can also possibly win uh, some of the giveaways that they have online as well. And that is our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Dave. David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.